Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome back to the Heredity Podcast. In this episode, we take a look at the genes behind cold acclimation in Drosophila and we redraw the phylogenetic tree of Darwin's finches. We'll start off this episode with an excerpt from the Nature podcast with a story I did that fits very nicely into the Heredity podcast. It's about Charles Darwin and his iconic finches. During his famous voyage aboard the Beagle, he chanced upon these birds in the Galapagos archipelago. He noticed that they all looked similar, but for the shape of their beaks, which varied dramatically. This fortuitous spot of birdwatching likely influenced his early thinking on his theory of natural selection. These birds, which later became known as Darwin's finches, make up what's called an adaptive radiation, where a single ancestor diversifies into a multitude of forms. Leif Anderson from Uppsala University and his team have taken a 21st century approach to these birds and sequenced all of their genomes. They've uncovered a key gene in their beak evolution and made some interesting tweaks to this iconic family tree. Here's Leif. What you could say is that Galapagos is like a laboratory for evolution. So Galapagos is not more than 5 million years old. And one and a half million years ago, the ancestors of these birds came to the island. And then they have diversified to utilize the different food resources like insects, seeds, uh, nectar, for instance. And that they have done by reshaping the beak of the ancestors. Right. Now, it's fair to say that you have now brought the study of Darwin's finches into the 2010s. How have you done that? So we decided to use this new wonderful tool of next-generation sequencing, as we say. So the, the technology that allows you to sequence any organism at a reasonable cost. And we thought that if we can get information from the whole genome, then we should have all the information that is there to try to reconstruct the evolutionary history of the Darwin finches and try to see the signatures of selection of those genes that have contributed to the adaptive evolution of the finches. Now, obviously, these finches being such an iconic bunch of species, researchers have already drawn their family tree. Out of the genomic data now then, how did your tree match up? There was overall a good agreement, but there were interesting discrepancies. So, for instance, we found examples of three populations that have been classified as one species because they were very similar. They looked similar. But when we got the DNA sequence, we saw that they were three distinct species. And an important discovery we made by doing this was that we saw that there has been uh, hybridization between species have taken place throughout this radiation. And we could see that this is an ongoing process, that during the evolution of Darwin finches, now and then there is hybridization between species. And, and in some cases, this has contributed to the evolution of the birds. 
Isn't this a bit paradoxical, though, that there are such clear differences in beak morphology and yet there are genes being shared around between the species? How come they haven't sort of all merged back into hybrids? The thing is that, you know, it's the balance between gene flow and selection. So selection can overcome this effect of, of gene flow and in some place could take advantage of the gene flow. I mean, to, to reuse a genetic variants that were selected in one species and then could be taken up by another species. So they still differs in their uh, lifestyle, but they could still share genetic variants. Now, obviously, if you look at these birds, as we've mentioned, the first thing that separates them is their beak morphology. One of the other aims of your study was to try and pin down the genes behind this variation in beak shape. Did you get any promising-looking candidates? So we classified species as either having a pointed beak or the blunt beak. And then we scanned the whole genome to look for where the birds with the blunt beak were similar to each other, but different from the one with pointed beaks assuming that that would be the regions that has responded to selection. And when we did this screen, we got 15 top candidate regions. But we focused on perhaps the most important gene during this, this evolution. And that turned out to be a gene called ALX1. And ALX1 codes for a transcription factor. And a transcription factor regulates the gene expression of other genes. What is interesting with, with this particular gene is that it's all has been shown that mutations in humans that inactivate this gene lead to severe disorder in craniofacial development. Right, so this makes perfect sense as a candidate for a gene that would be behind the diversity in beak shape. Absolutely. And so you looked at the, the role of this gene through you know, deep evolutionary time, but there's also a classic recent story of these species responding to a drought uh, in 1987. Did this gene look like it played a role there? Yes. So when we had identified this difference between the pointed and the blunt beak, then we screened that across all the species. And what was very interesting was that for, in most species, they were either pointed or blunt, and that matched with their phenotype. But there is a species called the medium ground finch, and that we found out that this ALX1 was variable there. So some had a blunt and some had a pointed. And that was particularly interesting because one of the very important discoveries that Peter and Rosemary Grant has done during their years on the Galapagos is that they have seen rapid evolution of beak shape in just this species, the medium ground finch. So therefore we decided to investigate more birds. So we investigated some 60 birds of the medium ground finch and we could show that in fact this variance that we see across species also explain the variation within the medium ground finch, which means that we now have identified a gene that have contributed to this rapid evolution that the grants have documented during their field work on, on the Galapagos. That was Leif Anderson from Uppsala University. Next up, I spoke to Darren Parker from the University of St Andrews. You might remember him from a previous episode talking about alternative splicing. This time round, he and his team published a paper on cold acclimation in two species of Drosophila. Specifically, they wanted to compare the genes underlying this physiological response to cold in two closely related species. 
Surprisingly, whilst they showed homology at the level of the phenotypic response to cold, the differentially expressed genes behind the trait were largely different between the two species. I started off by asking Darren about the kinds of challenges insects face when the temperatures drop. So the challenge for insects when temperatures drop is the ability to stay active. Because insects are cold-blooded, largely they have to find a way to stay active during the cold periods of the seasons. There are several adaptions that they can do here. They can migrate, so they could move away from the cold to somewhere warmer. They could enter into a diapause where they just wait until seasons become favorable again. Or they can cold acclimate, whereby they change their physiology to be able to remain active for longer while it's cold. Give me a bit more detail on the physiology of cold acclimation. So cold acclimation has several aspects, the most important of which is maintaining your cellular osmotic balance. So this is both the metabolic profile of the cell, what ions, etc. are in it, but also the membrane of the cell has to maintain its fluidity to enable insects to continue to move as the temperature drops. And so this cold acclimation has clear fitness benefits for insects. Like how widespread is it? So cold acclimation is pretty much universal as far as we can see across the insects. In all insects that we look in, seem to have a cold acclimation response. So we'd expect to see, and we do indeed see, uh, quite a lot of phenotypic homology in this cold acclimation. That's right. Insects often differ in their cold tolerance per se. So insects from the north tend to have higher cold tolerance, but... Because seasons are common across the globe, insects often show a shift to being able to deal with colder temperatures as winter onsets. Uh, We'd expect this to be homologous because of, as you mentioned, the the fitness benefits. But you say in your paper that homology can occur at different levels, can't it? That's right. So you've got phenotypic homology where we can see that the traits are, are similar. But also you can look at the genetic level and see if the genes that control a particular trait are also homologous. And these different levels of homology don't necessarily kind of evolve at the same rates. They don't always match up. That's right. There may be an instance where you have a phenotype that's homologous and the genetics that underlie it may be different. How can the phenotype of a trait be homologous whilst the genes differ? Yeah, so this this is quite a strange thing, but we often see these patterns. So one of the things that could actually be happening is that you would expect genes that have a major impact on a fitness to be homologous between the two species, whereas other genes that have a small effect on a phenotype uh, may actually be co-opted out of a particular phenotype into another one without influencing the phenotype too much. And so cold acclimation is a, is a sort of gradual process. I mean, how, what's going on with the genes behind it? So cold acclimation is clearly an inducible phenotype, so it comes with the onset of cold. This means we can study it in the laboratory quite easily by putting insects in the cold, and then we can use that to examine experimentally changes in gene expression. We can use this as a way to get to the genetic basis of a trait. How is it that you spot these genes that are differentially expressed as this cold acclimation is induced? So we use a technique called RNA-seq. You extract the RNA from an organism, and from that you generate a, a large number of reads, which allow you to not only get the sequence of the transcript, but also allow you to quantify the expression of a gene in a particular sample. Okay, and you were doing this for two closely related species of Drosophila, and you were taking these these RNA reads at different times during this process. That's right. So we had two species of Drosophila, Drosophila montana and Drosophila virilis, and we had them at their normal temperature, 
and we also had a cold acclimation temperature uh, and we took samples from both of these points. So let's hear about the results then. Were the genes that were differentially expressed the same in the two species? Largely the genes that we found differentially expressed in each of the species were different. However, we did find a a set of genes, uh, 42 genes, that were the same between the two species. Wasn't it surprising that those differentially expressed genes were, were mostly different between these two closely related species? It was quite surprising. We initially did this because we thought they'd be similar. But however, when we look to see the functions that these particular genes control, they seem to be quite similar. Okay, so even though they were even though different genes were being co-opted into this response, the physiological mechanisms, there was homology there. Yes, that's right. We found many genes involved in metabolic processes, um, which we think were to shift the cell's osmotic state. And we also found many genes involved in changing the phospholipid bilayer of, of cells. And that's, that sort of backs up previous work into this process. Previous work that's been based on a more sort of candidate gene approach uh, has found that these sort of genes are actually involved in cold acclimation. And when we look at the phenotype, again, this is the sort of things that we see. So most of these genes that were differentially expressed were actually different between the two species. There was, a, there was a big group of genes that were the same as well, wasn't there? The genes that we found that were the same have also been implicated previously with candidate gene studies. And these are likely to represent the genes that have a large effect on the cold acclimation phenotype. Right, so they're the kind of heavily conserved core set of genes behind this process. Yes, uh, and we suggest that these are the genes that are actually controlling the cold acclimation phenotype. And these conserved genes must have remained conserved for, for millions of years between these two species. These two species split about eight and a half million years ago. So they've been conserved in this role of being upregulated in response to cold for at least that amount of time. Okay. So there was actually conservation and divergence going on at the genetic level. That's right, and that that shows the power of an RNA-seq approach. Because it samples genes irrespective of their effect size on a particular trait, we can look at different gene sets and see different types of evolutionary process occurring. Was it surprising what kind of genes you found from your RNA-seq analysis? So we largely found genes that were related to the physiological processes that we already know are involved in cold acclimation. Uh, However, we also found some other genes that were somewhat more surprising. For instance, we found a gene involved in rhodopsin biosynthesis, uh, which came as a bit of a surprise to us. But recent previous work has shown that actually rhodopsin has a, a role in cold detection in Drosophila. So this uh, gene actually might be cueing the cold acclimation response itself. It might be actually responsible for cold detection. That was Darren Parker from the University of St Andrews in Scotland. That's it for this month's Heredity podcast. See you again in a month's time. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.